Donald Trump has been criticised for holding rallies in the time of coronavirus. So some of his supporters have gotten creative holding boat rallies. Genius, I say, Brian, genius. Yes, this has, be- <laughs> this has become a big thing here now. The Trump boat rally, they take to the water, flags flying, honouring President Trump, blowing their horns, making lots of noise. We're in the great outdoors. We got plenty of space. Nobody was crowded together. It was it was probably the best avenue and venue we could have for a rally. Not great news, though, coming from Texas over the weekend because hundreds of boats got together to honour Donald Trump in Texas. But their wakes created unexpected turbulence on the water. And, well, five of the boats started to sink. Luckily... Three were recovered. Um, Two, though, remain submerged. But thankfully, nobody was injured in that. Yes, and the Facebook page that was set up to arrange this boat parade said, decorate your boats in patriotic colours, fly as many Trump flags as your boat can handle to really make a statement. So I think they certainly did make a statement, but not the one they had intended to, making all the headlines over the weekend here in the US for all the wrong reasons. Why don't we have boat parades in Ireland? That Something like that could transform political campaigns here. It could be great for Carrick on Shannon and Leitrim. Leitrim, yes. It could become the centre of boat parades. <laughs> uh, you know, Leitrim, famous for lots of things. Didn't get its first set of traffic lights, Jackie. Until 2004. Oh, And I know this random. because I used to work with a cameraman called Ronan McIntyre in TV3 who was from Mohill County Leitrim. And he said they proudly boasted Leitrim's only set of traffic lights. He, that, that must have been a very proud moment. Oh, absolutely. It was his claim to fame. He spoke about it all the time. It used to become quite awkward. <laughs> from RTE News, this is states of mind. I am your president of law and order. You won't be safe in Joe Biden's America. All groups should practice self-monitoring and remain peaceful. This administration has shown it will tear our democracy down. May history be able to say that the end of this chapter of American darkness began here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. Your U.S. election 2020 podcast. With Brian O'Donovan in Washington. And Jackie Fox in Dublin. Today. And I'm part of a large and growing segment of the black community who are independent thinkers. And we believe that Donald Trump is the president that America needs to lead us forward. You're starting to also see black voters become woke and they're no longer tied to the Democratic Party. There's an enormous middle who just kind of is exhausted of it all. They know which way they're going to vote, but they're not enthusiastic about any of it. We looked at the world of the Electoral College last week on the podcast ahead of our Swing States episode today. So friends, back up a little bit by one episode and get up to speed on the Electoral College before you join us on our Swing State journey Brian, we can do a quick refresher, though, before we go anywhere. 
Absolutely worth reminding people about the Electoral College. The US presidency is not determined by the popular vote. It's won on the Electoral College vote. So you need a majority of 270 Electoral College votes. That's the magic number. 270 to win out of a total of 538. The number of Electoral College votes that a state has, roughly based on its population size. If a candidate wins the state, they win all those Electoral College votes and their opponent gets nothing. So naturally, campaigns eye up states to see where they could plausibly win electoral college votes to bring them to that magic number 270. Part of that is experts assess how states traditionally vote, which ones have a history of voting Republican or Democrat. Basically, what's the pattern? Is a candidate guaranteed to win a state because records show their party has won that state over X amount of years and polling suggests people there will vote that way again? Yeah, and last week we talked about how some states are known as safe states. They have a record of voting for a particular party every election, Democrat, Republican, nearly always the same, and you can be pretty guaranteed you're going to win those states. And they get branded with colours, a red state or a blue state, red for Republican, blue for Democrat. Remember, you need 270 electoral votes to win. We start with President Obama at 247, Governor Romney at 206. The dark blue states, those are strong Obama states. The light blue states, lean Obama states. The same for the Republicans, dark red Solid Romney, light red, lean Romney. So what do you have but here? this colour concept is actually pretty new. It only started in the 1970s. US TV networks were trying to find ways of showing which states were being won, so they decided to come up with this colour coding system. And they probably wanted to show off some splashy new graphics never seen before when a state was called in favour of a given candidate. Absolutely. So in 1972, colour-coded states were first broadcast on CBS. The colours were actually the other way around, would you believe? It was blue for Republican and red for Democrat. And that wasn't reversed until some years later. It wasn't until 2000, the race between Democrat and Vice President Al Gore and Republican Texas Governor George W. Bush, that those colours became synonymous with the name of each party. A momentous time for American politics, an unbelievable time for American politics. It rumbled on for weeks trying to decide who had won. There was legal cases, there was rows over who had won the state of Florida and who would eventually win the White House, of course, going to George W. Bush. But that is when we first saw red for Republican, blue for Democrat being used. And there's different theories about why those colours were chosen and why they were allocated to those parties. One New York Times graphics editor said it was because Republican begins with or, so they decided to go with red, which also begins with or, and it's been shorthand for the parties ever since. Fair enough. And now those colours are used to refer which party a state voted for during past presidential elections. This is totally generally speaking, but usually the northeast and the west coast of the US, they are usually considered blue as most of them have sided with the Democrats since the early 1990s. While southern states, bar Florida and Virginia, which we'll talk about in a moment, have sided with Republicans since the noughties. Hawaii and Alaska, not forgetting them, have been traditionally considered blue and red respectively, as neither have switched parties since the late 1980s. Yeah, so imagine you're a candidate and you're campaigning. And the question you have to ask if you're a Democrat is, why would I bother pumping all my money into somewhere like California, where I'm pretty sure I'm going to win anyway? Strong history of voting blue by very high margins. 
safe Democrat state. In just about 25 seconds, the polls will be closed in the state of California. This, of course, is a state which neither candidate contested. McCain because he didn't think he had any hope, and Obama because he didn't think he had any need. This was a state that was, like the other two states out on the far west coast, has been thought... Uh, thought uh, in the bag for the Democrats from the beginning. Uh, so you ask yourself, wouldn't I be better off diverting all my money into a state that is neither red nor blue, which, if you won, could give you a big electoral college boost? Because we didn't mention the Midwest here, along with Florida and Virginia, because they can be really tough to predict. Absolutely. And these states that move between parties are called swing states, battleground states, or purple states, because they're a mix of red and blue. And these could be Florida, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan. These are states that over the years have switched colours in recent elections and are often a key focus of electoral campaigns. You will see candidates going to them all the time, pumping all their money into them and always trying to get advertising, trying to get campaigning messages out in those key states. They are states that kind of a large number of electoral college votes as well, which is that all important to try to get that, that magic number mm. of 270. So what this means is that the contest for the presidential election really boils down to a handful of those swing states. And what we see is candidates campaigning and pumping money into them to try and sway those unpredictable voters. To assess what the swing states are in 2020, we, we really need to go back to the last two presidential election cycles. Yeah, so if you look back to 2016, all indications pointed towards the usual swing states, the Floridas, Iowas, Ohios, North Carolinas. But when the results came in, it became clear that some states that weren't considered swing states really at all at the time had become very, very significant. And there's three in particular, and we have spoken about these three in the past on the podcast, and you'll be hearing a lot more about them over the coming weeks. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Donald Trump, the winner in Wisconsin. Let's take a look at the Electoral College map right now with that win in Wisconsin. Look at how close he is. Right now he has 257 electoral votes. He needs 13 more, 270, to be elected president of the United States. Some big news here, Megan. Huge news, uh, actually. The AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. That is uh, the race, frankly. Uh, there is no path forward for Hillary Clinton. These were considered safe blue states. We spoke about this before. They said that Hillary Clinton had this unpenetrable blue wall of these three states that she would win handily and that would help her win the White House. But the big shock, the big surprise came when Donald Trump won those three states by the tiniest of margins. I think when you add it up, it was only something like 77,000 votes in those three states. He won those states and that helped propel him to the White House. So let's take Wisconsin, for example, a state with 10 electoral college votes. Donald Trump won Wisconsin by a 0.8 margin or just over 22 thousand votes in 2016 nabbing those 10 electoral college votes it's astonishing when you think of it the problem for hillary clinton here wisconsin was thought to be so much of a blue state that after the conventions hillary clinton didn't even bother to campaign there and the wall comes tumbling down this is the blue wall that uh, hillary clinton had talked about this is a state that hillary clinton hasn't even visited since the democratic convention over the summer this is a state that, that voted for Mike Dukakis over George H.W. Bush. I mean, this is a reliably Democratic state. The idea that the Clinton campaign could see white working class voters going to Trump in places like Iowa and Ohio and not 
see that Wisconsin was also potentially in jeopardy. That's remarkable. Yes, and she got a lot of criticism and a lot of stick for that, saying you didn't even bother to campaign in these swing states. You thought you had them in the bag. She defended herself, saying that she was winning there until October 28th, until, and you'll remember this, the former FBI director, Jim Comey, announced that she was still under investigation for her emails. She feels that really scuppered her chances. She also claimed there was voter suppression. And overall, after that election, Hillary Clinton was criticised for not putting in the effort in the likes of your Michigans, Wisconsin's, Pennsylvania's, because again, they thought they had them in the bag. This time around, huge focus, particularly on Wisconsin. And something that we've seen in the last few weeks in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which has been the scene of racial unrest following a police shooting of an African-American man. We had Donald Trump going there one day, and then just two days later, Joe Biden going there. In both cases, local leaders had actually asked both leaders to stay away. They didn't want the candidates there for fear it would reignite those racial tensions. But both went, both had very contrasting messages. Donald Trump siding with the police and the law and order. Joe Biden siding with the family of Jacob Blake, the African-American man, and siding with the Black Lives Matter movement and calling for the country to heal. But it was a stark reminder of how important Wisconsin was as a swing state, both candidates insisting on going there in the space of two days. And this week, we have both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, the vice presidential candidates, heading for Wisconsin. And when we look back at 2016, again, with those figures, the likes of Michigan, 16 electoral college votes. Obama had a comfortable win here in 2008 and 2012. Trump won here by just 11,000 votes in 2016, while in Pennsylvania, Trump won it by a 0.7% margin. And that was the first time Republicans won a presidential election here since the 1988 election. The total margin for Donald Trump's win in those three states was less than 1% in 2016. The Holy Trinity, uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin have a combined electoral college vote of 46. Considering that tight margin, there is a lot riding on these three states in 2020 as they're as swingy as you can get. Remember them for election night or election week, but we'll get to that another time. Brian, you were actually in Pennsylvania this weekend. Was it business or pleasure? Pleasure. We were up visiting friends in the town of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, which is in rural Pennsylvania, about 90 minutes from Washington, D.C. And I was struck, Jackie, as we went through this beautiful, beautiful countryside on a very beautiful sunny day. Trump after Trump after Trump. Lawn signs, flags, posters hanging off people's walls. I know you're going to say that's not scientific. That's not an indication of every, of anything. It was still very clear, though, that in this particular area of rural Pennsylvania, Lots of Trump supporters, lots of Trump fans. And that is, of course, what you see in Pennsylvania and what you see in a lot of states, that in the rural parts, they will be traditionally Republican. And then in more the suburbs and the cities, it will generally lean Democrat. But Pennsylvania is a really interesting state to look at for a couple of reasons. I was up there in July as well, this time for business, covering competing Mike Pence and Joe Biden events that were happening simultaneously in different parts of Pennsylvania. And a real focus here, and Joe Biden's very hopeful for Pennsylvania. Remember, he was born in Scranton. He is seen as the local boy. He is seen as the guy, blue-collar Joe, who's for the blue-collar worker. He's for the working class. And he would be hoping to win back the steel workers, the coal miners, the Rust Belt voters that backed Donald Trump back in 2016, who would traditionally have been Democrat, but who did not like Hillary Clinton, who felt she would damage their industry, she would remove coal mining, she would shut down steel plants. So they decided to go with Donald Trump. 
Yeah, Brian, because people often ask, why did these states switch? Why was it so unexpected? Because in 2018, you went to find out that. I did, yeah. I mean, the big thing about Pennsylvania would be seen as part of the so-called Rust Belt, where you would have coal miners, steel miners, people who worked in these steel plants that maybe lost their jobs or were in fear of losing their jobs. And they felt Donald Trump was the better bet for them. He promised to keep steel plants open and to reopen closed coal mines, whereas they felt Hillary Clinton was going down a more modernizing environmental route who would shut all their steel plants and their coal mines. And I visited the town of Uniontown, Pennsylvania, back in 2018 for the coverage of the midterm elections. And it was interesting to speak to people there, many of them who had voted for Donald Trump. Some felt they'd been very left down. Donald Trump had come to their town and vowed during the election campaign to reopen the coal mines, to give them all back their jobs. He didn't. The coal mines hadn't reopened. But there was mixed views. Some had felt left down and said they would not be voting for him again. Others, however, felt Donald Trump had done a very good job and had been good for their area. And we can hear now some of the views that we got on the street back in 2018 in the town of Uniontown, Pennsylvania. Bayonne delivered everything so far, but I mean, things have definitely improved over the way they were in the past, even under previous Republican administrations. I've heard a lot of people complaining about Donald Trump. Uh, They were very enthusiastic in 2016 about him, and I don't feel the enthusiasm. The Democrats have just gone, they've just gone crazy and I can't, I can't vote for what they're doing right now. What do you think of the performance of President Trump right now? I think it's great. He could tone down the rhetoric a little bit, but uh, he's, he's got our back. Now in 2020, these swing states They're all in focus. Donald Trump won them with such small margins. Will he hold on to that? Will people vote for him again? Are they happy with his performance? Will those who voted red in 2016 stay red or go back to blue? Will Democrats who didn't vote in 2016 vote in 2020? There are so many questions. One place of importance is Erie, located in northwestern Pennsylvania. Obama won here in 2012 by 16 points, but it has been largely plagued by industrial decline, which is what we've been talking about. Donald Trump's re-election plan relied on bringing jobs back to cities like Erie. And he went there and told them in 2016 that he wanted to put the worker first, focus on trade deals and politics that would boost the steel industry. So Erie has lost a lot, right? You know that, right? Hang in, don't leave, I promise. We can fix it so fast. We will stop these countries from taking our jobs. We will stop these countries from taking our companies. Hold on, our jobs will come back. Now, I came up with a great plan. I'm lowering corporate taxes so our companies stay. So I don't even have to make the call. Yeah, and that historically blue county of Erie flipped red by fewer than 2,000 votes and it helped deliver the entire state of Pennsylvania and the presidency for Donald Trump. And everybody, again, looking at Pennsylvania right now and what are the polls saying? And just last week, a poll came out showing that, yes, Joe Biden is still in front, as he is in all polls, but that the margin had been reduced significantly. And I think the gap was only something like four points, which is nothing. It's within the margin of error. So huge focus on Pennsylvania. And as I say, huge focus on specific little areas within Pennsylvania, like places like Erie. And it's a great place to test the mood 
right now in these key swing states? How are people feeling there? These democratic strongholds that flipped Republican four years ago, will they stay red or will they go back blue? Let's talk now to Sean Vidorko. He's an Erie resident and the owner of Radius Cowork. So, Sean, um, first off, can you set the scene for everybody who has never been to Erie, Pennsylvania? What is it like there? Yeah, so Erie, Pennsylvania is a post-industrial town um, in uh, the northwest of Pennsylvania, right beneath the Great Lake Erie. Uh, you know, it peaked as a city of about 140,000. It's now down to a city of about 97,000 um, and starting to kind of creep back up. Uh, it's got about 20% immigrant population in the city um, and about 280,000 uh, residents in, in the county or the, the, the metro area. And, uh, you know, it's been traditionally a manufacturing town that has shifted into a lot of uh, tourism um, and uh, a large education sector with four universities um, and now is shifting into a little bit more of uh, a tech city. So tell us, what happened between 2012 and 2016 in Erie that makes people like us from around the world look at it with such focus now in 2020? Yeah, so there were, there were a bunch of counties that flipped um, in the, the uh, presidential election going from blue to red between uh, uh, 2012 and, and 2016. And uh, Erie County was kind of ground zero for formerly blue collar uh, Democrats who went for Trump. Uh, you know, there are 149 voting districts, um, 77 of those in New York County's voting districts, they um, uh, they went to Clinton, 69 were in the city, um, Trump won 68, four of them were tied, but, uh, you know, Donald Trump won the majority of the votes. Um, we saw a decrease in voter turnout, you know, there were 68.5% uh, of the, the electorate who had turned out in the 2012 election. Um, only, uh, I think, something like 63% turned out in, uh, in 2016. And a, a lot of it was just sort of the feeling of continued decline, I think. Um, I didn't come back to years, I was born here, but I didn't come back until about 2015. And um, it was really when the city was hitting rock bottom. It was losing the last of its sort of major manufacturing employment jobs. Um, the, the, the largest manufacturing employer, General Electric, who had been declining their utilization of the plant locally. And um, there was a, a lot of you know, economic animosity, but um, you know there was a, there's a pretty big divide between the rural perception of the the county and the urban perception of the county. Clinton and Barack Obama won all of the districts in the city, um, you know, and and Hillary Clinton wins none of the districts in the county. So a very big you know rural and urban, metro um, and suburban divide, and a very big divide between those who are you know shifting into a newer tech and education centered. Uh, economy and, and those who are uh, hearkening back and, and looking for the revitalization of an economic manufacturing economy. D Donald Trump won Pennsylvania after sort of promising, you know, I'll reopen your coal mines, I'll reopen your steel plants, I'll bring back the factories. Did he? And if he didn't, do you think there's a lot of people out there who did vote for him and are now disappointed and won't vote for him again? No, listen, I don't know anybody who's 28 years old and really pining to go work at a coal mine. Um, you know, uh, those those jobs really didn't um, materialize, and and the manufacturing sector really hasn't seen a, 
an enormous growth and, and we shouldn't really expect to see an enormous surge in employment in the manufacturing sector. I mean, much of Erie County has maintained a lot of its uh, manufacturing GDP despite declining employment because of the modernization of the production process. Um, you know, we didn't see a new surge in manufacturing jobs in the, the General Electric plant. In fact, we've seen several plants um, manufacturing uh, employment decline in the region. So now we really, really haven't seen that come back. But, you know, to be honest, uh, I, I don't know that there's a, a huge segment of the young adult and young student population that's that's eager for that, um, that labor-based economy. They're, they're looking for, you know, a more modernized economy that's able to compete on a global stage. Can we ask you personally, would you consider yourself a swing voter in a swing state? Do you know what way you're going to go on November 3rd? Well, I mean, to be honest, you know, I'm not registered with either party. Um, I do know which way, you know, I'm I'm going to vote. You know, I'm I'm going to be voting for uh, Joe Biden. Um, you know, a lot of that has to do with just sort of decency. Um, I think that politeness and kindness, I think that um, education and uh, moral leadership um, and inspirational leadership that uh, people who inspire us to be better are, are probably the best people to, suited to lead us. And we don't really see a whole lot of that with Donald Trump. You wouldn't really describe him as kind and inspirational. What's the chat on the ground there, Sean, about the election? You know, when you go get your coffee, when you're doing your family meals, when you're meeting friends for a lunch, what are people saying about the candidates, about the presidential election? Is it still as divided as it was? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, there's a pretty big um, polarization among a large segment of the population. But for a really, you know, enormous middle, um, and this is really kind of the problem in America, there's there's an enormous middle who just kind of is exhausted of it all. Um, they know which way they're going to vote, but they're not enthusiastic about any of it. Um, the the um, enthusiasm, the really polarized support that you see, those are really fringe groups. You know, the, the vast majority of the conversations I have are people just totally exhausted with a... Um, brutal economic process that does not really provide a lot of middle ground, a lot of negotiation, a lot of reasonable discussion, and frankly is not yielding a lot of really impressive results for the county, you know, for, for the, the state or, or for the federal government. So, yeah, people know which way they're going to vote, but I would not say that many people are um, enthusiastic. Is that enthusiastic about the current administration and frustrations around that or just about the political climate itself? It's both. You know, the, the current administration has not really um, given us a whole lot of reasons to be enthusiastic. Um, when we look at kind of the state of uh, social life in America, civic discourse, um, economic vitality, public health, certainly. But, uh, you know, even broadly, I don't think anybody looks at the American political process right now, particularly related to the parties, and says, yeah, this is working out really well for us. We should keep doing it. Um, I think most people are are uh, pretty exhausted and are looking for more of a broader political cultural change. There was a sense all summer that Donald Trump was in big trouble and way behind Joe Biden. Then we hit the conventions in recent weeks and a sense that maybe Donald Trump had tapped into something with this law and order message and the fear of marauding gangs on the street if Joe Biden is elected. How do you think that law and order message is playing in a state like Pennsylvania? And do you think it might make a difference and help close the gap in the polls for Donald Trump? You know, I think there's some... Some, there's some small percentage of people who will be persuaded by that, but broadly it just excites a base. Um, I don't think if you ask the most people on the street, you said, do you think there will be marauding gangs in a year? I don't think anybody would reasonably expect that to happen, regardless of who's elected. 
But, um, you know, do I think he'll win? I, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard to say. Um, just looking at the numbers, you know, looking at the swing that we saw, um, looking at the enthusiasm that you see among those those kind of political uh, fringes and really the, 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 the middle who are being really quiet, um, who really don't want to pop their heads out into what's a pretty intense political fray uh, and, and take, a, take a stand. So I, I, it is really hard to call. I, I couldn't tell you. talk about some new areas coming into the swing state fold in 2020. Recent opinion polls as well as results from the 2018 midterm elections suggest that states such as Texas and Georgia, known as red states, could be competitive in 2020. Yeah, so states that would not have been seen as swing states at all in the past. You mentioned Texas there. Would have been seen as reliably Republican, a red state. Now, Lots of evidence that it could switch and it may be competitive this time around. There are some opinion polls out there that has Joe Biden in the lead, actually, in Texas, which would have been unthinkable just a few months ago, particularly a few years ago. Nobody would have thought this. And if he were to win Texas, Biden, it would make the presidency almost impossible for Donald Trump because he would have so he would have soaked up 38 electoral college votes that would have been in the Trump camp and then they would have gone Biden's way. Now, I was in Texas back in 2018 again for the midterm elections, covering the Senate race between Beto O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. And it was a really interesting Senate race to cover because you'll recall at the time, Beto O'Rourke was doing really, really well in all the polls. There was a sense that maybe he could pull off this shock victory and defeat the Republican incumbent Ted Cruz. It didn't happen that way in the end. He lost, but he only lost by a pretty small margin. And it was very interesting to go to Texas and to speak to people. Mm -hmm. And the big thing about Texas now is demographics and a growing number of Hispanic voters which traditionally and typically vote Democrat, and this could pose big, big problems for the Republicans over the coming years. Also another state that everybody's watching, Georgia, a solid red state, bar Jimmy Carter winning back in 1976 and again in 1980. It was his home state after all. George W. Bush carried the state by margins of more than 10 percentage points in 2000 and 2004. But the gap between Republicans and Democrats in Georgia has narrowed in recent years. Trump won it by 5.1% in 2016. So let's bring in someone to talk about the election and the unlikely swing states in what's turning out to be a bumper episode of States of Mind. We're joined now by Vernon Jones, a Georgia state representative who is a Democrat, but who spoke at the Republican convention. And I'm part of a large and growing segment of the black community who are independent thinkers. And we believe that Donald Trump is the president that America needs to lead us forward. Vernon, thanks for joining us. Vernon, during your speech at the convention, you spoke about how Democrats had wanted to keep black voters in a mental plantation, had been pandering to black voters. The majority of people out there would have this sense that the Democrats sort of have the black vote sewn up and that Joe Biden has this huge Afri African-American support base. But you don't agree. You think the Democrats have left African-American voters down. Well, clearly, they have felt for years that the Democrats, or the Democrats have felt for years that the black vote is a captive audience. They don't have to earn that vote. And what happens, when the first they come to for our votes and when the elections are over, with the first that they throw off the bus and no agenda for the African-American community. 
And what Donald Trump has done, he has changed the dynamics. He has sought out not only to earn the black vote, but he has a record on delivering to black people for specific areas. For one, obviously what he's done with prison reform, that was a crime bill passed by the Democrats, mainly Joe Biden, where he's now letting those African-Americans and others out of prison who were clear where the crime did not match the time, they're able to be reunited with their families and be productive citizens and get some of those jobs that the president has created. Obviously, the job uh, unemployment record was a record low prior to the pandemic for African-Americans, which they hadn't seen in, in since slavery. Uh, wages had increased. The gap had closed between whites and blacks. Uh, but also what he's done for historical black colleges, which I'm a proud graduate of North Carolina Central University, where these are schools that are the incubators for blacks who couldn't go to white schools to train scholars in arts, science, math, and even politics. So this president has a record. Uh, on supporting and earning the black vote. Sure. I, but but on the issue of like racial tension and racial divide, I mean, Democrats would say that Donald Trump has done nothing to ease those tensions and in fact is stoking them by his rhetoric, by his tweets. We saw him go to Kenosha last week. He wouldn't condemn any of his own supporters who clashed with protesters. He didn't meet with Jacob Blake's family and he very much sided with the police. Like, do you take that criticism that he's done nothing to ease these tensions and to try to heal the country? Well, first of all, Donald Trump, um, has done nothing to create tension, in my opinion, in the African-American community. He has said things that are true. Uh, we do need to, need to stand with the, with the police. These protesters are not protesters. They're rioters where they're having whites and blacks who are killing and harming and assaulting black families. Black Lives Matter. More black lives have been lost since Black Lives Matter has started these uh, riots. These are not protests. We see buildings burning. You're seeing black businesses destroyed. Black police officer, a former black police chief, was shot down on the streets in St. Louis by those Antifa and Black Lives Matter uh, rioters. And so what has really created a storm in the black community is how racist Joe Biden has been to literally say that if you don't vote for him, you're not black. And then more recently he came out and said that, you know, black people, they're diverse in thinking is not the same as others. That's racial tension. That is literally saying that black people have no brain. They can't think for themselves. And the Democrats want to be in charge of black people. And that's that slave mentality I was referring to, that plantation mentality. That's far more worse. What Donald Trump wants to do to the black community is give you jobs, give you opportunities to start and grow your business and, and create uh, generational wealth. So that's what he does to help the black community. I mean, the Democratic Party has turned their backs on the police department and, and defunding police officers and defunding their budgets. That in itself is hurting the black community because we need police officers in the black community and black people welcome police officers in the black community as long as they're fair, as long as they're doing their job and they're not violating their civil rights. Nikki Haley also spoke at the Republican National Convention, which you spoke at as well. And she said, it is a lie that America has a race problem. Do you agree? Well, I think America has a lot of issues. Uh, I think there are times when people feel that they are uh, treated uh, unfairly. I think what she's probably saying that, you know, and I don't want to speak for her. Uh, you can ask her, but I think she's trying to say this country uh, has come a long ways. And obviously we have a long ways to go. But I can tell you, um, when you look at the, what's plaguing the black community right now, it's a lot more coming from 
how the Democratic Party has kept blacks from getting jobs and getting access to the American dream, how the Democratic Party always addressed other folks' issues, whether it's illegals, making sure that they are taken care of. They're not for school chores. They prefer to see kids trapped in failing schools. That's what's hurting the black community. That's what's creating, if anything, the divide. Vernon, as you left the White House last month, having listened to Donald Trump's big acceptance speech, you were surrounded by protesters, you were shouted at, you received quite a lot of verbal abuse. In general, since you came out as a big Donald Trump supporter, have you met with a lot of aggression and abuse out there? Well, I get that abuse every day, whether it's via social media and and um, uh, other means. But let, let me tell you, here's the challenge. And here's, I think, what the media overlooked. How is it that when the Democratic Party had their national convention, there were no Republicans protesting? There was no one threatening uh, those who decided or wanted to support uh, this president, uh, want to support uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. But at the Republican convention, why was Black Lives Matter and Antifa seizing that moment? to attack us for our freedom. And that's one of the things uh, of America that we have in our constitution, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. But that's why I cannot accept the Democratic Party ways now, because what they're doing is they're attacking the constitution. And Joe Biden, nor Kamala Harris, nor the Democratic Party will denounce the activity, how they're threatening people just because of their choice or decide to wear paraphernalia. But not only are those groups doing it, but the liberal media here is doing it. And they're help pushing this divide. They're pushing the violence. They're help helping to destroy these cities where they're literally burning cities down. Portland, for example, they have been rioting for 100 straight days, 100. And yet has the president, I should say, yet has Vice President Joe Biden or Kamala Harris condemn what they're doing in Portland. And when you mentioned that the president didn't meet with, with uh, the family of the young man, that unfortunately was was shot in the incident. Well, would that have made a difference? Now it's like you have to go and meet with them. Why do you have to meet with them? He can't meet with everybody. Why aren't Joe Biden and others meeting with all those black families in Chicago and other places where their children being shot down every weekend? You don't see Joe Biden going there. As a matter of fact, I like the fact that the president doesn't make it political. Joe Biden makes it political. He comes out of his ground hall when he thinks it's safe, when he thinks he can get away with something, and then runs back in his ground hall. Um, that's the problem. They're doing it. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden are visiting these victims' families for political purposes. But these others that do not make the, 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 the news media, uh, check and see this weekend how many people have been killed and shot uh, in Chicago and see if Joe Biden going to Chicago. You don't see that happen. And this president has offered on many occasions to come in re with resources and stop the violence. But the Democrats don't want it to stop because they think that's the only way they can beat uh, President Trump. They can't beat him on jobs. They can't beat him on his position with world uh, affairs. They can't beat him on helping small businesses. They can't beat him on the job growth. Uh, they want destruction. That's the only way they, see they can defeat this president. As we said at the top, Vernon, you spoke during the Republican convention, and so do did quite a few other African-American speakers who pushed hard for Donald Trump's support and calling on black voters to vote Republican. But do you think it's a lost cause? There's a real sense out there that certainly Joe Biden has the African-American vote sewn up. I know you're pushing hard to make it go the other way, but do you think you'll be successful? See, what you just said is feeding that narrative that Joe Biden has the African-American vote sewed up. And that's where it's been all the time. 
they just said, okay, blacks are going to vote for me regardless. Why? Like Joe Biden said, just because we're black. But when you're seeing blacks now becoming woke and saying, hell to the no, we're not going to do this anymore, it horrifies and terrifies the Democratic Party. And when they want to talk about the blacks who spoke at the Republican convention, look how many blacks they paraded across the stage at the Democratic convention. But if you ask blacks right now, what has Joe Biden and the Democratic Party, including Obama, done for them in the past 47 years, they can't point to anything other than destruction of the black community. Failed schools, uh, put them in prison, lock them up, lock them down. Small businesses didn't grow under the Democrat rule. So, and these cities are failing, they are run by Democrats. And so when you say that he has it sold up, historically they've had it sold up, but Donald Trump has been able to do what he did to Washington. He changed Washington. Washington didn't change him. He's done more to earn the black votes than Democrats or Republicans have in the past 50 years. And he has finally broken that wall. There's a crack in it. Black, more and more blacks are coming out for Donald Trump. Um, and you're going to see that silent majority come out. And, and you know, what's interesting, whites, many whites, including Democrats, want to support this president, but they're afraid to say anything publicly because they'll be attacked and called racist. And then there are blacks who really want to come out and support this president, and they are Democrats as well, but they don't want to be called sellouts or Uncle Toms by the media and others. So what they're doing, the liberal media, that is, so what they're doing is just silently, uh, they have their minds made up, they're lying to the posters or don't want to reveal the truth to the posters, let me say that, not lying, and they're going to go as a silent majority, and they're going to reelect this president. And the big difference between Donald Trump and, and Joe Biden is Joe Biden has a dream. If you elect me after 47 years, black people, I'll get it right this time. I'll do something for you this time. And Donald Trump, on the other hand, he has a solid record of helping directly in the black community. On this podcast as well, Vernon Jones, we've been talking about swing states and there's talk at the moment that Georgia, your home state where you are, is edging closer to becoming more of a swing state. And the gap between Republicans and Democrats have been narrowing um, over the past couple of presidential election cycles. What do you make of that? Do you think things are going to change this year? Well, first of all, I clearly believe that Donald Trump is going to win Georgia. No question about it. What you do see, though, is historically the pendulum swings. It swings one way, it swings the other way. But while that pendulum is swinging, you're starting to also see black voters become woke and they're no longer tied to the Democratic Party. Why have they been voting that way? Because they've just been told, oh, you're black, you're supposed to vote Democrat. Republicans don't care anything about you. Donald Trump has changed that entire par uh, paradigm where you're seeing now blacks are becoming like, wait a minute, especially the newer generation, the younger generation. Um, they're saying, wait a minute, uh, we're not victims. Uh, we can have our own business. We can think for ourselves. Uh, we can be creative. We can be entrepreneurs. Um, you know, they're realizing President uh, um, um, Obama came and went and did nothing. For, as a matter of fact, the election of President uh, Obama, as we see it now in the black community, it, he, his, his presidency meant a lot to black people but he didn't do anything for black people. So now with Kamala Harris, black people are not just gonna vote for her just because she's happened to be or have some parts of her being black. They're looking at, okay, what is her record? Well, her record is locking up black and brown men. We saw over the weekend as well, um, boat rallies, Donald Trump boat rallies. Is this the new and safe way of campaigning during a pandemic in 2020? 
Well, I can tell you this. I was a part of the one at Lake Lanier. Oh, were it you? It was a huge success. Yes, I was. Uh, probably some I hope yours didn't sink, Vernon. I hope you're okay. Pardon me? I said, I hope your boat didn't sink. I hope everything was okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's start. I'm glad you're taping because um, <laughs> you threw me off there, man. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm going to get you back. Um, the, the voters for Trump uh, sailing towards the November election for victory was a big success. I was just part of one here in Georgia th yesterday, over 2,000 votes. Luckily, no one uh, sank. Um, it was a great day. We were all law-abiding according to you know the rules and regulations, uh, but it was a huge success. It allowed everybody to, I guess, be uh, uh, socially accepted in terms of this pandemic. Um, people were just out there showing that support. It was massive support. I've never seen anything like that before, and that is going across this country with uh, these voting groups. And these are just regular citizens coming together. And you don't see them, you may not see them around town, but when you see them out on those boats and they were coming from miles and miles away to be a part of it, it shows you the amount of support this president has. The president is very popular in Georgia. Uh, and he loves Georgia. Every time we talk, he's talking about Georgia and how much he appreciates value of Georgia, uh, Georgia support. Uh, but I, I can tell you this, um, in Georgia, regardless of how close some may think it is, this president's going to win. So close only counts in horseshoes. Whoever get the most marbles will win this election, and Donald Trump will win Georgia. I can tell you that. We're in September now and we are edging closer and closer to the debates and we're trying to get through a lot of the issues uh, to do with this presidential election before then. We are working on our postal voting episode, so don't you worry, it is on the way. Absolutely. And there's so much happening. We would nearly need a litrum traffic light to control <laughs> the speed at which we are going to be covering topics and issues. We want to hear from you. Email us contact us on Twitter, let us know if there's any particular topic you want us to cover. And there's going to be so much news over the next two months as we race towards Election Day on November 3rd. No doubt lots of surprises, no doubt lots of intrigue. And we also want to hear from you if there's any particular topics you'd like us to cover. Any particular topics and tune in for more of Brian's dad jokes in the coming week. I'm sure there'll be plenty of them. Talk to you next week, Brian. <laughs> That's a promise. <laughs> Chat to you next week. Bye bye.